0: I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. And this morning we'll look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 14. Uh, If you're using one of the Bibles that is provided for you, you'll find our passage on page 1001, page 1001. So, Hebrews chapter 1, and this morning we're going to focus on verses 4 through 14, but I'm actually going to begin reading for us in verse 1, uh, pick up the passage that we looked at last week just to provide some context, and then read through our passage for this morning, and we'll consider what the Lord uh, has to say to us from His Word. So, Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, this is God's Word. "'Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets.' as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, "'You are My Son, today I have begotten you'?" Or again, "'I will be to him a father, and he shall be to Me a son.'" And again, when He brings the firstborn into the world, He says, "'Let all God's angels worship Him.'" Of the angels, He says, He makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, "'Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet?' Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation?' Amen. Well, our mission as a church is to glorify God by making disciples who enjoy, live, and proclaim the gospel. And as you see on the slide here, we are going through series, various series over the next several years focusing on different elements of our mission statement, and currently we're focused on the theme of the glory of God. And right now we are going through the book of Hebrews, and we are giving special consideration to the theme of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, We began this series in Hebrews last Sunday, and I know last Sunday was a holiday weekend, and so we had a number of people traveling and out of town. And so I want to just take a few moments to remind you of the historical context in which this letter was written. So the author of Hebrews is unknown, uh, but as we survey the book as a whole, it becomes fairly apparent that the letter is written to a group of Jewish Christians who were in Rome And um, they were very well acquainted with the Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, They were being persecuted for their faith in Christ. And for some of them, this persecution included public scorn, imprisonment, and the plundering of their property. And as a result, these Jewish Christians are tempted to give up on their faith in Jesus because of the persecution that they've been experiencing and to revert back to their Judaism. And so the author of Hebrews is writing them and admonishing them not to give up on their faith in Christ, not to revert back to Judaism, but rather to persevere and to press on in their faithfulness to Jesus. Last week we saw that the author of Hebrews opened up this letter by declaring that Jesus is greater than the Old Testament prophets. And this week we will see, as we look at verses 4 through 14, that the author of Hebrews demonstrates that Jesus is greater than, Jesus is superior to the angels. Now that might seem a little strange to us. Why does the author of Hebrews take ten verses here in the opening chapter of this letter to emphasize the fact that Jesus is superior to angels? Well, the Bible has many wonderful things to say about angels, but as it relates to the immediate context uh, here in the book of Hebrews, in particular, the Bible teaches us that the law of God was mediated to Moses through angels. So this, had particularly relevant, this is particularly relevant to Jewish Christians who were tempted to revert back to Judaism. So, in Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, Stephen acknowledges that the Jews received the law as delivered by angels, and the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3 verse 19 states that the law was put into place through angels by an intermediary. In fact, the author of Hebrews, just in the next chapter here, in chapter 2, verse 2, says something similar, where he refers to the Old Covenant as the message declared by angels. So it seems in the immediate context that the author of Hebrews is eager to emphasize this point, that the Son is superior to the angels, in order to make the greater point that the gospel is superior to the law to the Old Covenant, and therefore they should not revert back to the Old Covenant, to Judaism, to the law, but they should remain faithful to the Son who is superior to the angels. We also know that during the period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's referred to as the intertestamental period, it's about 400 years, that there was this growing fascination with angels, and a lot of it was unhealthy and it actually spilled over into the time of the life of Jesus and then into the early church so that the apostle Paul when he writes the church in Colossae he has to warn them in Colossians chapter 2 verse 18 let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels unfortunately a similar unhealthy fascination and even worship of angels exist today. You may have noticed during Master's Week that um, up and down Washington Road, there are some folks who station themselves in pairs. And they station themselves up and down Washington Road, and beside each of the pairs that's there is positioned a literature rack. And the literature that's on that rack looks like Christian literature and they hand it out to hundreds, thousands of people that go up and down Washington Road uh, during Master's Week. And the folks that are stationed there with those literature racks are Jehovah's Witnesses. And Jehovah's Witnesses believe, among many of the false doctrines that they teach, believe that Jesus is synonymous with Michael the archangel. And so, as a result, for believing that Jesus is essentially an angel along with many other false doctrines that they teach, Jehovah's Witnesses are not a different version of historical biblical Christianity, but rather are a cult that has rejected historic biblical Christianity. But it's not only outside of the church that we see kind of this unhealthy fascination, even worship of angels. Sometimes we experience it inside the church, I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but uh, I graduated from high school in 1993, and in the 90s, angels were the craze. So in 1993, when I graduated from high school, five out of the ten best-selling religious books were devoted to the subject of angels. In fact, one writer in Life magazine in 1995, he wrote these words to describe kind of the phenomenon of the obsession of angels in our culture. He writes, quote, Like Elvis and cowboy theme stores, angel boutiques are hot. These days I discover I could outfit myself completely in angel clothes, from an angel vest and suspenders to angel boxer shorts. I could flush my toilet with a brass cherub flusher. I could fill my shelves with angels made of all various types of material. I could outfit my computer with an angel mouse pad and angel screensavers. I could wash my hands with pink angel soap, wipe my hands on angel towels, then spray the bathroom with cherub air freshener. I could turn on an angel nightlight, slip slip between angel sheets, and lay my head on an angel pillow and when it's time for vacation, I could pack an angel suitcase and ship out on a seven-day cruise to the Caribbean with the world's most foremost angel experts who would teach me how to contact angels. He concludes, at times, contemporary angeldom seems so cluttered with images of angels, I worry I wouldn't recognize a real angel if I tripped over its wings, end of quote. Now, granted, in the 90s, for those of you who lived in the 90s, you might remember that popular music acts also existed in the 90s like Nirvana and Tupac and the Beastie Boys. So not everybody was into angels, okay? But it was a cultural phenomenon, and we could say even especially sometimes among Christians. You might say, well, it's a good thing we're past those days, right? We've moved beyond that as the Christian church. Well, recently I came across an article on the, Gos- on the Gospel Coalition. It was entitled, Nine Things You Should Know About the Bethel Church Movement. Bethel is a uh, charismatic megachurch out in California, and I don't know much about it at all. Um, I just I know their music is popular and uh, Bethel music, but I don't know much about them at all, so I decided I would check out the article. And I learned from the article that Benny Johnson, who is one of the pastors at the church, teaches that there are, quote, different kinds of angels, messenger angels, healing angels, fiery angels, who have, quote, unquote, fallen asleep. So there's these great angels, according to the Benny Johnson, there are these great angels that have fallen asleep, and we as Christians are responsible to awaken them and give them work to do. And one of the methods that we should use as Christians to awaken them is to shout out loud, wakey, wakey. And we can say, wacky, wacky, right? In fact, the church also claims that various times during the life of their church angels' feathers and gold dust has fallen from angels' wings from heaven and descended upon the congregants of Bethel Church, sometimes at their home, sometimes in their workplace, sometimes in their services. Do you see why the New Testament authors warned the early church about an unhealthy fascination with angels? Because an unhealthy fascination with angels can lead to an egregious misunderstanding of who Jesus is. Think Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus is Michael the Archangel. Or an unhealthy fascination with angels can lead the people of God to be dramatically distracted from the One to whom is to, uh, who is to receive all of our focus and attention, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's so critical in this letter, in the letter that the, the, this author is writing to Hebrews, to the Hebrews, because the author of Hebrews teaches us in this letter that if we are to be faithful in the midst of persecution, if we are to be faithful to Jesus and to persevere in the Christian life, how are we to do that? By beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. And so the author of Hebrews is jealous. God is jealous that nothing would distract us from the supremacy, the primacy of the Lord Jesus in our minds and in our hearts, that nothing would distract us from Him and from His glory. And so the author of Hebrews opens this letter by warning, by warning the Christians that he is writing to, to not have an unhealthy fascination with angels. When making this argument that Jesus is superior to the angels, the author of Hebrews will go through here. He makes, I want us to highlight three arguments this morning, but in so doing, he, he cites seven Old Testament passages of Scripture, Okay? And I will say this is a particularly challenging message to preach because each one of these citations he gives from the Old Testament are fascinating, and we could go back and look at it in the original context and see how the author of Hebrews is interpreting each one of these passages. And of course, we don't have time to do all of that this morning, so I'll have to limit my comments. But I want us to see these three arguments that the author of Hebrews makes to establish the fact that Jesus is superior, the Son is superior to the angels. And as we do so, we will see these seven Old Testament quotations. So, this is the first argument, the first point this morning. We find it in verses 4 through 6. The Son inherits a superior name and the angels are commanded to worship Him. So, this is the first argument, first point. The Son inherits a superior name and the angels are commanded to worship Him. We see this in verses 4 through 6. So you see there in verse 4, the author of Hebrews asserts that the Son has inherited, Jesus has inherited, a greater name than the angels, and this testifies to His superiority over the angels. Look there in verse 4, "...having become as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs." And what is that name? What is the name that Jesus has inherited that establishes that He is superior to the angels? The name He has inherited is Son. You see there in both the Old Testament citations in verse 5, the next verse, both those Old Testament citations stress the Father's identification of the Son as His Son. So you see there, you are My Son. Today I have begotten you. And the second citation, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, the first citation there is taken from Psalm chapter 2, or Psalm 2, verse 7. Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm, which means that it was a psalm that was clearly looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. In its original context, it is applied to King David, but it finds its ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. And notice there, in the psalm, He says, You are My Son, today I have begotten You. Now, in the original context of Psalm 2, as well as here in the context of Hebrews chapter 1, the word begotten there carries the sense of appoint or declare. So, the Bible teaches us that as a result of Jesus' perfect life of obedience and as a result of Jesus' atoning death on the cross for His people, that God raised Him up from the dead and He exalted Him and declared Him to be the Son of God. This was the reward for His life of obedience and the atoning sacrifice that He offered for His people. So, in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, The Apostle Paul says, He, that is Jesus, was declared to be the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead. So, understand this. The Son was always the Son of God. He's eternal. He's preexistent. There was never a time when He was not the Son. Okay? He's always been the Son of God. But upon Jesus' resurrection and exaltation, He enters into a new experience of sonship. As the Father declares Him, recognizes Him, crowns Him, the Messianic Davidic King, God's true Son. Now, the second citation you see there in verse 5 comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 4. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, God originally spoke these words to King David when he made a covenant with David. And these words possess a near and then an ultimate fulfillment. So, the near fulfillment, these words were fulfilled in David's immediate son, Solomon, whom God used to build God's temple. But it's obvious from the promise that's made there in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that there's something more to come because God goes on to promise David's son or promise David that He would have a son who would inherit an eternal throne and an eternal kingdom. And this promise is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, the Son of God. So, here we see in these verses that Jesus is superior to the angels because none of the angels have been identified as the Son of God. That's a name that only the Son has received. And He has always existed as the Son of God, but in response to His life of obedience and toning death on the cross, He was declared the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead. He was declared to be the Son of David the Messianic King, the Son of God. This is the name He has inherited, Son. Now notice consequently in verse 6, the angels are commanded to worship Him. So you see there in verse 6 we read, and again when He brings the firstborn into the world He says, let all God's angels worship Him. Now notice there that the Son is referred to as the firstborn. Now in Hebrew culture, The firstborn held a position of prominence. He held rights to the inheritance of the family. And so the firstborn indicates the one who is favored, the one who's blessed, the one who's esteemed, the one who's honored. Uh, We find a a, a use of uh, firstborn in Psalm 89 verse 27. This is referring to King David. And there we read, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So, what does it mean to be the firstborn? It means to be the highest, the most supreme of all the kings of the earth. And this is the Lord Jesus. He is the favored one, the esteemed one, the honored one. And when is He to be worshiped by the angels? Notice what the text says. It says there in the text, and again, when He brings the firstborn into the world. Now, that's interesting because some people believe that What's being said here, what's being referenced here is the incarnation. Uh, That when Jesus was born, he was the eternal Son of God, he took on flesh and was born as a baby and came into this world. And 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 we remember that in Luke chapter 2, the angels worshiped at the coming of the Lord Jesus. We sing about it at Christmas, right? In Luke 2, when the Angels declared glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. But actually, and we don't have time to go into all the reasons, it's probably more likely that the reference here is not to Jesus' incarnation, but what we've been talking about previously, to Jesus' resurrection. That here the reference is to when Jesus was brought from death into life, back into this world, from death into life, that the Lord commands that the angels are to worship Him. And so here the author of Hebrews cites Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, let all the angels worship Him. But what is clear, and notice this from the passage, this is very clear in the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make, is that the angels are to worship the Son, and the Son is to be worshiped. Now, that is significant because that is a remarkable, significant argument, another argument for the deity of the Son, for the truth that the Son is divine, that He is God. We see this illustrated well in Revelation chapter 22, verses 8 through 9. Some of you know that the book of Revelation was revealed to the Apostle John through an angel. And John in the book of Revelation gives his own testimony regarding that experience. And John writes these words, "'I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me.'" So John is saying that the angel he encountered was so majestic and so glorious that he was tempted to worship the angel. He goes on to write, But he, that is the angel, said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. So do you see the distinction there between the Son and the angels? The angels refuse worship from others because they recognize they are not God. They say, do not worship me. But God commands that the angels worship the Son, and the Son receives worship from others because He is God. He is the divine Son. So, the Son inherits a superior name, and the angels are commanded to worship Him. Therefore, the Son is superior to the angels. The second argument is this. The second argument, and this is our second point if you're taking notes, the angels are servants, but the Son is the eternal King and never-changing Creator. The angels are servants, but the Son is the eternal King and never-changing Creator. We see this in verses 7 through 12 in our passage. So in verse 7, you see there that the author of Hebrews cites Psalm 104. Psalm 104 is a psalm that celebrates God as Creator, and in particular, the author of Hebrews cites Psalm 104, verse 4, which gives evidence that God sends out His angels like wind, like flames of fire. So, you see there in verse 7, of the angels He says, and here's the citation, He makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. So His angels are servants, and they're really good at it. He sends them out, and they move like wind. They move like fire on His behalf to accomplish His purposes. But then in contrast, in verses 8 through 10, He says this regarding the Son. And in verses 8 and 9, the author of Hebrews cites Psalm 45. Look there in verse 8. But of the Son, He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of a brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So, here's the interesting thing about this. Psalm 45 is actually a royal psalm. And it was written in honor of the King of Israel. And in the original context, it seems strange that the King of Israel is referred to as God. You can see it there in the text. Verse 8, "'Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of Your kingdom is a scepter of a brightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, Your God, has anointed You.'" Now, it's obvious in the original context that David or the Davidic king, the son of David, was not literally God, but it seems like what's happening here is that God is being used here similarly to the way it is used in Exodus chapter 7 verse 1. So, in Exodus chapter 7, the people of Israel are under Egyptian bondage and slavery, and God calls Moses to lead His people out of that bondage and slavery. And God says to Moses in Exodus chapter 7 verse 1, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Now it's obvious from Exodus 7 that Moses is not God, but the idea is that Moses is God's representative to the people of Israel because he speaks God's word on God's behalf to the people. And the Davidic king in the Old Testament in many ways was the same. He was the representative of God on God's behalf to the people. Now the author of Hebrews sees these words of this psalm and he sees them fulfilled in Jesus. Because Jesus is the ultimate representative of God to God's people. And not just as an inferior agent like Moses or David were inferior to God, but they represented God to God's people. But no, as an equal, as the divine Son, as one who is divine Himself, He represents God to God's people. And so, he applies this psalm to Jesus. The psalmist goes on to say, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And of course, ultimately, this is true in Jesus. Because His kingdom, the kingdom of the Son, will truly last forever, not just because one of His sons will assume or sit on the throne in the future, but because He Himself, once He assumes the throne after His resurrection, will reign forever and ever and ever. Isn't this what the angel told Mary when Mary was carrying the Lord Jesus when she was pregnant and the angel appeared? to Mary in Luke chapter 1 verses 32 and 33 and the angel said he speaking of Jesus will be great and will be called son of the most high and the lord will give to him the throne of his father david and he will reign over the house of jacob forever and his king of his kingdom there will be no end so the angels are servants sent out to run errands on behalf of god but the son is the eternal King. Notice, though, in verses 10 and 12, 10 through 12, the author of Hebrews goes on to cite another psalm to establish the superiority of the Son over the angels. Look there in verse 10, "'And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Now, this is this also is fascinating because Psalm 102 is a psalm celebrating God as the Creator. And the author of Hebrews here takes Psalm 102, celebrating God as the Creator, and he applies it to Jesus. Now, this teaches us something very important about how the author of Hebrews reads the Old Testament and how the rest of the New Testament authors read the, New te- uh, the Old Testament. Why would the author of Hebrews feel comfortable taking an Old Testament passage of Scripture that is clearly speaking of God, Yahweh, the personal covenantal name of God in the Old Testament, and then applying that passage to Jesus? You know why he feels comfortable doing that? because he learned how to interpret the Old Testament from Jesus himself. Do you remember last week we talked about the conflict in John 8 that was uh, between Jesus and the Jews? And the Jews were challenging Jesus, and they say, you know, are you greater than Abraham our father, and are you greater than the prophets who have died? And you remember Jesus' response? Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am they were flabbergasted right what is this man talking about and in jesus making that statement he is claiming preexistence he's claiming that he is eternal abraham lived 2000 years before jesus but jesus says i existed before abraham and not only that then jesus goes on to claim the divine name Remember in the Old Testament, God revealed himself to Moses as, I am who I am. And Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus is taking an Old Testament passage of scripture that clearly refers to Yahweh and he's applying it to himself. And so the author of Hebrews comes across this passage. It's referring to Yahweh, God, as the creator of the universe. And the author of Hebrews says, That also applies to the Son because He's eternal. He was there. He's divine. He is God. And He also participated in the creation of the world. Just like the Apostle Paul declares in the book of Colossians, all things were created by Him and through Him and for Him. He is the eternal Creator. And as the psalm goes on to say here, the creation will perish, it will wear out like a robe, it will be rolled up like a garment, it will be changed. But the Son, the Creator's Son, He will remain the same and His years will have no end. And so notice what the author of Hebrews is saying here. Again, the angels are servants, they're errand boys, they're sent out like wind and fire to accomplish the purposes of God. But the Son, in contrast, is the eternal King, never-changing, immutable Creator of the universe. The third argument, that the Son is greater than the angels, the third argument is this, and this is our third point. The Son reigns supreme, and the angels are sent out to serve the heirs of salvation. The Son reigns supreme, and the angels are sent out to serve the heirs of salvation. Now, this is found in verses 13 and 14, and you notice there in verse 13, the author of Hebrews cites Psalm 110, Psalm 110. Actually, Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage of Scripture in the New Testament. It's very important in terms of the New Testament, and it's a Messianic psalm as well. It's looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And once again, the author of Hebrews here is following the example of Jesus in interpreting the Old Testament because during Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus Himself cited Psalm 110 and then He applied it to Himself. So you see there in verse 13, "...and to which of the angels has He ever said," and here's Psalm 110, "...sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet." Now. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus actually challenges the Pharisees. So it's not so much, it's not the religious leaders coming at Jesus now. Jesus challenges them. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, What do you think about the Christ, that is the Messiah? Whose son is he? Now that's relevant given the fact that we're talking about the son in Hebrews chapter 1, right? Jesus asked the Pharisees, Whose son is the Messiah? Whose son is is the Christ, and the Pharisees respond, the son of David, and that's a good answer. David's son would be the Messiah, but Jesus presses it further. Jesus challenges them again. How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, and then Jesus cites Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord, that is Yahweh, this is, and this is David speaking. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, that is the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Then Jesus asked them, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And Matthew records, no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So here's the question that that Jesus is posing from Psalm uh, 110. How can David say of the one who is to be his son that he is also his Lord? The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, that's what David says. Yahweh says to my Lord, who is the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. How is it that David can say of his son, you're my Lord? And the answer that Jesus gives and the rest of the New Testament authors is that the Messiah is both human and He is divine. That's how David can call Him Lord. He is human. He is David's son. But He is also divine. He is David's Lord. And so David submits himself to Him. As a result, you see here in the text that God has exalted Him. God says to Him, sit at My right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So, the Son, again, is the Sovereign Lord who reigns supreme. Notice in contrast, though, what He says about the angels in verse 14. "'Are they, that is the angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation?' So, in chapter 1, verse 6, we learn that the angels are to worship the Son. Now, we learn in verse 14 that the angels are sent out to minister to those who have been redeemed by the Son, to minister to those who have inherited salvation. There's a vivid illustration of this again in the book of Revelation because there's a moment in the book of Revelation where the Lord pulls back. The curtain of the throne room of heaven and allows us to peer in. And when we peer into the throne room of God, what we see there in the book of Revelation is that Jesus is sitting on His throne. That's the, words that, that's the word that the book of Revelation uses. Jesus is sitting on His throne. And the angels and the elders are standing before Him, ready to worship Him and to be sent out to accomplish His redemptive purposes. And so the angels are servants who are sent, but the risen Christ is the sovereign King who reigns supreme. So for all these reasons, the author of Hebrews argues that Jesus is greater than the angels. Now, as we conclude, I want you to briefly notice how the author of Hebrews applies this truth. I mean, this is a pretty long argument that he's made here, that Jesus is superior to the angels, and this is how he applies it. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, so here's the application. As a result, this is the implication. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. For since the message declared by angels proved to be profitable... What, what, is that, what is that message that was declared by angels? It was the message that was mediated through angels to Moses, right? The law, the Old Testament, that's what he's referring to. And it proved to be reliable. It was trustworthy. It was true. And then he goes on in verse 2 to say, And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. So the, so the message that was given through the angels to Moses, it was true, it was trustworthy. And those who broke that covenant, who rejected that message, they received just retribution. They were judged because they rejected the message of God given through angels to Moses. Verse 3, then how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, that is the Son, Jesus, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So if the Old Testament, or the Old Covenant, was mediated to us by angels, and it was true and it was trustworthy and those who rejected it were judged, how much more will we be judged, the author of Hebrews is saying, If we reject the greater revelation that has come to us, not through angels, but through God's own Son, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? At the beginning of the message this morning, I talked a fair amount about the dangers of the unhealthy fascination with angels. But you want to know a dirty little secret Oftentimes, an unhealthy fascination with angels is motivated by a desire to avoid God. And this is how it works. Angels are often presented to us as cute and cuddly, you know, non-judgmental, apathetic to immorality. They just kind of go with the flow. Angels don't want to judge you. They just want to be your friend. And it seems so spiritual to read about angels and talk about angels and think about angels and and maybe pray to angels. And so oftentimes folks will fixate their attention on angels because they want to have some spiritual experience apart from God. They want to receive some sense of divine approval apart from reckoning with the God of the Bible. So, how do we respond to that? One, we need to recognize that is not a biblical presentation of angels. The Bible has many wonderful things to say about angels. Angels are not the problem. But angels are not presented in the Bible as kind of milk toast, you know, like go one way or the other way, cute and cuddly, apathetic. Angels in the Bible are representations of God's might and holiness. And with joyful zeal, they declare and defend and execute His righteous decrees and His salvation and redemption for His people. And the second thing we need to acknowledge is that the Scriptures clearly teach us that the only way to experience God in His glory and in His love and in His mercy and in His grace and in His power is through the Son. The only way to receive His divine approval is through the Son. As magnificent and glorious as angels are, they are but a slither of the glory of the Son. And they cannot save us. The only one who can save us is the one who is human and divine, the one who is eternal, the one who is the never-changing creator, the one who died for the sins of his people, the one who was raised from the dead, the one who was exalted to the right hand of God, the one who is the sovereign king. He is the only one who can make us right with God. And He is the Son. Trust in Him and receive, receive His gift, the gift of God, this great salvation. Or as the psalmist says in Psalm 2, looking forward to the Messianic King who was to come, in Psalm 2, verse 12, kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in your way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. But listen to this, but blessed are those who take refuge in Him, blessed are those who trust in Him." Let's pray. Father, we gather together this morning to worship You and to worship the Son. And we do join with all the angels in worshiping the Son. We confess that He is glorious beyond our imagination, and we come here this morning to acknowledge His glory and His power and His grace and His supremacy. Father, we thank You for the way that You use angels to accomplish Your purposes and even to bring about. Your salvation and redemption for us, Your people. But, Father, we pray that we would never be distracted by angels in an unhealthy way that would take our attention finally and ultimately off of or away from the Son. Father, I pray for anyone who is here this morning that has not trusted in the Son, who has not looked to Jesus in faith. I pray, Lord, that by Your grace they would do so even now. Lord, we thank You that You have sent the Son for sinners like us who need redemption and salvation, and we confess this morning that He is the only one who can save us and redeem us, and we look to Him in faith in Him alone. Lord, I pray that You would work by Your Spirit now, that You would be calling us to Yourself, that You would be renewing our love and devotion for the Son, and that we would worship Him and follow Him even as the angels do. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray.